I'm Lee Rowland, and this is At Liberty from the ACLU, the podcast that explores the biggest civil rights and civil liberties issues of our day. In the past few weeks, the treatment of immigrant families at the U.S. border has dominated the public conversation. Under a new zero-tolerance policy, the government has arrested thousands of people crossing the U.S. border, including those seeking asylum, and separated them from their children. In response to national outrage, the president signed an executive order supposedly ending family separation. We are taping this episode on Wednesday, June 27th. And on Tuesday, yesterday, there were two major court decisions. First, the Supreme Court upheld President Trump's travel ban against people from certain Muslim countries. And late last night, a federal court in California issued a ruling in a case brought by the ACLU ordering the government to immediately reunite families currently separated by the government. Today, we have with us Lee Gallant. Lee is lead counsel in this case called Mrs. L versus ICE. It's a constitutional challenge to the government's practice of separating immigrant families at the border that was filed earlier this year. Lee's also the deputy director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project. He's worked on immigration and national security issues at the ACLU since 1992. He's here to help us explain this court decision and what's next for families at the border. Lee, thank you so much for being Thanks for here. having me. Especially on what I assume is about four and a half minutes of sleep. Right. Well, we know you run well on fumes, so, so <laughs> thanks. Let's start with the ruling that you got in the family separation lawsuit last night. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's an, an enormous victory, um, a complete victory. Every child has been separated, and now we think there's an excess of 2,000 kids. Kids as young as one years old, two years old, have to be reunited within 30 days. And if you're under five, within 14 days, and every parent needs to be able to speak to their child within 10 days. You'd think that every parent would know where their child's being held. They don't, so we even had to ask for that, and no more separations going forward. Notwithstanding President Trump's executive order, we believe that separations will continue. We ask the judge to stop separations going forward and to reunite these kids. It's just been going on too long. The harm is, is becoming devastating on the ground. And we are so thankful the judge said, I'm going to help these kids and set hard deadlines. Is this ruling going to apply to all kids that are currently being held without their families in detention? It will be. Okay. I, you know, the kids who have been separated were kids at the border. It doesn't apply to kids who were separated at the interior, but we're not aware of any such kids. So this is essentially... What's been in the public are the kids who have been separated at the border, the in excess of 2,000 kids, and it applies to all these kids. It's nationwide. Okay, so I've been hearing some horror stories about people who have no leads on where their kids are, defense attorneys, immigration attorneys who have been trying to get information. As you said, I've been here a long time at the ACLU. I've been doing this work for 25 plus years. This is the most terrific practice I've seen in all that time. You know, and there, I think there's, two things going on is one is just the harm that comes from the separation. This is gonna cause deep-seated and likely permanent trauma. I just visited one of our the families in our lawsuit who finally got reunited. Two boys, four and 10 years old. They were separated for months. The little four-year-old boy just keeps asking his mother every night, are they gonna come and take me away again? The other thing that's going on on the ground is that families don't even know where their kids are. It's remarkable. 
The kids are taken away. Sometimes it takes weeks or a month for the parent to even learn where the child is, to even speak to the child. One of our plaintiffs told us that she got up the nerve to ask where her child was. And the government person just said Chicago and walked away. She told me she didn't know whether Chicago was a person, a place, or an agency. And do you know, from what you found out in the lawsuit and and what you've heard from folks on the border, does the government actually know where all these children are? They say they do. We'll see whether they do. I think what's most likely is that one agency may know where all the parents are and another agency may know where all the kids are, but they have no good tracking system. And what we ultimately said to the judge was, look, we don't think the government has a plan to reunite. They need to be forced into coming up with a plan. And we don't frankly care what the mechanics are of that plan. Just get them to do it. And everyone's saying this is an enormous task. It is, but we don't think it's an insurmountable task. When the United States government, with all its resources, puts its mind to something and is told they have to do something, we absolutely think they can do it. It's a matter of prioritizing these little kids. That's what was not happening. Now the court has said, enough is enough. Get these children back to their parents. We think the government can do that now that they're going to be forced to. And they also can turn to the help of thousands and thousands of volunteers who have been coming out and saying, we want to help all the nonprofit groups and agencies. There's no question in my mind that they can do it if they want to. They just have not been prioritizing these little kids. One of the more striking passages in the court's opinion was noting that the government seems to be able to keep track of people's money and wallets and personal belongings better than they could their own flesh and blood children. I think that's really striking, and it made me think as a reader, the government manages items every day, right? Not just people on the border, but people in custody, people who are incarcerated. It seems frankly astounding that this system of removing thousands of kids from families could have ever begun without that basic tracking in place. Do you have a sense of how this arose? Well, I think they were much more concerned with the punitive aspect of it and removing the kids and not really worried about the reunification part. So they rushed in to do the punitive part and they just decided, you know, Let's do it, whether we have a plan in place or not. They really weren't concerned about the reunification. And had there not been a lawsuit and had there not been public outcry, I think these kids would have just languished in government facilities for months and months. Perhaps they would have been sent to foster homes. It is really a bad situation. I mean, and and one of the things I want to stress is that there's been public outcry in the last month or so, and that has been an amazing thing. And There's been a lot of focus on the attorney general's announcement of the zero tolerance policy, but all that did is actually formalize the policy and it increased the numbers. But we fought our lawsuit back in February because what we had heard is that it was happening in practice, that hundreds and hundreds of kids were being separated, but the public's attention was deflected away because the administration kept saying, we're considering a policy, we're considering a policy. But everyone thought, okay, that means they're not doing it until they actually enact a formal policy. We fought our lawsuit before it became a big deal because we knew from advocates on the ground that it was happening. Then the attorney general, three days after our hearing, announced it was a formal policy and the numbers increased. And thankfully, the public outcry got louder and louder. But this has been happening for a while, unfortunately. You mentioned this as a punitive policy. Uh, It is 
true that Trump and others in the administration have insisted that family separation is necessary to deter immigrants from taking right. advantage of our lax immigration and asylum laws. Right. What do you think of that claim? I think two things. I think the first thing is, if you ask any law enforcement official in immigration or otherwise, they would tell you it's simply not an effective deterrent. I mean, one of the things I do is ask all these moms when I meet them, would you have come anyway if you knew your child was going to be taken away? And they basically just throw up their arms and say, this has been the most horrible experience of my life, having my child taken away. But I just think I would have had to come anyway, because what choice did I have? I was facing danger, potential torture, death in my own country. My child was. I just had to come. So I think what most people will tell you who study this is it's not actually a deterrent. But the other thing I would say is, even if it were a deterrent, at some point we need to just say, look, there are a lot of things we could do that might deter people, but just as a civilized society, we don't do them. And one of the things we don't do is tear little children away from their parents. And I always felt when I started this lawsuit that this was an issue that was going to resonate beyond the normal immigration debate lines and that it was going to resonate with both Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, because I think basically the American people say, we may not agree with you on all immigration policy and we may have disputes about larger macro questions on immigration policy, but on this issue, the Trump administration has just gone too far, making these little children negotiating pawns, doing this kind of damage to little kids. I don't think you need to be a parent to say, wait, enough's enough. You said you brought this lawsuit in February before this was formalized as a right. public policy. Right. How did you find out about it and how did you get clients to challenge this policy? There are amazing advocates on the ground who go into these detention centers every day. And they had begun telling people in the mid-fall to late fall, there are separations occurring. And we had been hearing a steady drumbeat of more and more separations. So we began looking into it, doing research. And finally, someone said, there's a Congolese mom who's in jail in San Diego by herself. And I said, I'm getting on a plane to go see her. And I went out there. And at that point, we had heard that there were enough separations to be thinking about a national class action. But it was still a few weeks away from being able to file it, putting it together. I went out there and I met with her. And she was just so distraught, gaunt from not eating, not sleeping. And it told me the story of what happened, that she had fled violence. She was likely going to be killed in the Congo took her six-year-old daughter and they fled the Congo through 10 countries all by themselves, made it all the way here after four months, sleeping outside for days on end, some days not eating. They finally made it to the U.S. border. They presented themselves legally at the border. They didn't cross. They presented themselves legally, which, you know, just to stop for a second, the administration keeps saying, if you don't want your child taken, don't cross the border illegally. This is a family that stopped at the border and presented themselves at the border in San Diego and said, we need protection. They had learned a little bit of Spanish on their journey through Central America at the end, and they said, we need protection. The guards took them and put them in like a makeshift motel detention center for four days. The mom passed her initial asylum screening. On the fourth day, 
the child was asked to come into an adjacent room. The child was brought in an adjacent room. The mother was handcuffed and said, you're going to go to prison here in San Diego. She then heard her little girl screaming at the top of her lungs, mommy, don't let them take me away. Don't let them take me away. They whisked her away to Chicago. They didn't tell the mother for four days where the child had been taken. She was able to speak to her daughter for maybe 10 to 15 minutes every 10 days or so. She had no idea where Chicago was, why her child had been taken, what was going on. She was all by herself. We went out to meet with her and said, do you want help getting your daughter back? She said, yes, I got her an individual asylum lawyer to handle her case in immigration court. And on the plane back, I just decided we can't wait to help this woman till we have another 10 days or so to file a national class action. So the initial suit was filed at the end of February just on her behalf to get her back together with her child. It just seemed like it was too much damage being done to her and her child. And when we filed the lawsuit, we asked that it be expedited. The government came in remarkably and said, oh, we took the child away to Chicago for the past four months for the child's best interest. And we said, oh, really? Why is that? Wow. said, oh, well, the mother could, it could have been a smuggler. And we said, wait, the little girl is screaming and begging not to be taken away from her mother. It should have been clear. And the judge, this, and the government said, well, she didn't have her papers. And we said, well, of course, many asylum seekers don't have their papers by the time they reach the U.S., and the judge finally just said to them, hey, what about a DNA test? It takes two seconds. It's a swab these days. So of course, at that point, the government had to do the DNA test. And of course, it was the mother. So they reunited the child and the mother. And I was there when they were reunited in Chicago. A nonprofit shelter took them in. And it was just the rawest emotion I've ever seen. Because it wasn't just the four months of separation. It was that they were from a little village in the Congo they didn't know what was going on. They had no reason to believe that they would ever see each other again. And that emotion, that hug, I have never seen anything like it. And from then we filed a national class action because there were just so many of these mothers. I mean, this was an important first test case, but we said, we obviously can't stop. There's hundreds and hundreds of mothers. And now there's 2000 mothers. Some of the kids, or 18 months, one year, another one of our clients, the little boy was 18 months. They made the mother put him in a car seat. The little boy is screaming. They make the mother close the door. They don't let her comfort the little boy. And then like anybody who has a young kid that age or can remember that, the little boy is conditioned to looking at his mother through the window to see whether she's coming around to drive the car. That's what the little boy is conditioned. And all of a sudden the car starts pulling away and he's looking at his mother just standing there and his eyes just become so wide and the mother is in tears and they're just driving off. And it's happening hundreds and hundreds of times a week just like that. It is so devastating. And when we filed the class action, we said to the judge, we need these children to be promptly reunified and we need separations to stop going forward. How long ago is this now? We filed the class action in March. Right. It took a while to brief it. We had a hearing on May 4th. And interestingly, getting to your punitive point, everyone knew that the government was doing this as a punitive measure to deter people from coming to this country or to give up their asylum claims. The idea from the administration was, if word gets out around the world that we're gonna take your child, maybe you won't come here. Well, interestingly, the judge was very pointed in his questioning and he said to the government lawyer, 
So are you doing this to deter families from coming here? Because if you are, isn't that unconstitutional? And isn't it true that General Kelly and others have been saying this in the press? And the government lawyer would not admit it was for deterrence. The government had been talking wow. very tough in the public, but when it came time to answer the question in court, they tried a shifting retroactive rationales. Well, some parents don't have papers. The government said, what about DNA tests? And it just went on and on like that. But after a while, the harm was so great the numbers were so great, we had an emergency telephonic conference call with the judge last Friday, and I basically pleaded with the judge and say, Your Honor, I think the time has come to set hard deadlines. The harm is just too great. You're the only one who can really stop this. The president is not really going to stop it. His executive order doesn't even talk about reunifying the children. Congress doesn't appear to be going to step in. And I think the judge acted in the best traditions of the federal courts, you know, not to sort of be sort of too lofty, but I, I think, you know, at some level, that's why we have this system. I mean, the framers set up this system where federal courts would have lifetime tenure and they could act for the vulnerable, notwithstanding whatever the political pressures are on them. And he finally said, look, I do need to set a deadline because I can't let any children continue to be harmed this way. That trauma happens every single day. Exactly, right? and we, you know, we basically, I just said to him point blank, Your Honor, every night there are little kids going to sleep in this country wondering if they're ever gonna see their parents again. That cannot happen in the United States. We asked you for prompt reunification in the beginning. We thought that was the correct thing, but now we really need Your Honor to set concrete deadlines. And fortunately last night he did, 30 days to reunite every kid for kids under five within two weeks and within 10 days, every parent needs to be able to speak to their child. You know, we are so grateful and I think there are gonna be real tears of joy in the detention centers around the country when the parents and children start to learn that they're finally gonna see each other again. And, and other people get that hug that you got to witness Mrs. Exactly, have with exactly. Her kid. Yeah. Do you think the government's gonna appeal this ruling? In most of my cases over the years, I think I have a fairly good sense of what the government's gonna do. I would say I'm genuinely not sure how the government's gonna react. I think the spectrum is pretty broad. I think they could appeal immediately and ask for an immediate stay from the Court of Appeals and say, we just can't comply with this 30-day deadline. Right. And I guess the most extreme version of that is the Court of Appeals says no stay, and they actually go during the summer to the Supreme Court. On the other end of the spectrum is, of course, they say, we recognize these children are gonna be harmed and we're gonna do everything we can to reunify. Somewhere in the middle, I suspect, could be them going back to the district court after two weeks and say, we just can't meet the deadlines, can you extend them? We will need to monitor this on the ground. It will take all of the volunteers and advocacy groups to make sure the government's complying. What was the effect of that executive order and did you view it as a positive development or, or not? I think my answer is yes or no and let me explain. The positive development is that for the first time in this administration, we have pushed the president back and he has had to renege on something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an enormous development. And I think it's lessons learned over the 18 months that public outcry really is the thing. You know, I guess, but did it stick? I mean, that's one of the reasons I was interested in the appeal, because he had the executive order, which which seemed like a response to public outrage. But then, of course, he went back on Twitter 
seemingly oh, I, angry and, I, and to say no due process for anybody. I don't want right? to suggest that the president himself is not going to be out there still pushing anti-immigrant. Right. But I do believe that he actually was forced to sign an executive order was an enormous step. But on the concrete level, we didn't believe the executive order was gonna do what we needed. Right. So we believed that the executive order had too many express loopholes in it and that it would not stop family separation going forward. And that's why we said to the judge, we still need an injunction to stop separations going forward. He gave us that. But what we also pointed out is the executive order said nothing nothing about reunifying the 2,000 children who had already been separated. Right. So in that respect, we absolutely still needed an injunction. The judge agreed and gave us the injunction. The executive order, as you mentioned, says nothing about reunifying the kids who are separated and seems to take a more incarceration-forward approach, that is to keep families detained together. Are, are there constitutional limits on that? Yeah, I mean, so we will push back very hard with public outcry and in the courts, if the f government just says, okay, you want everyone together, all we're gonna do is create all these enormous family prisons and indiscriminately detain families. Our view is the constitution requires both adults and children to be released if they're not a flight risk or a danger. So if what we see now are large family prisons for immigrants, we will certainly push back. We wanna get these kids with their parents immediately. That's the next stage if we see that happening. And when you talk about that policy of incarcerating people together, are you talking about all folks who cross the border or are we talking about asylum seekers specifically? We are talking about everyone. I think the asylum seekers the judge pointed out have particularly strong claims to staying, but we're talking about everyone. We don't think that anybody should be detained if they're not a flight risk or a danger. And we certainly don't think anybody should lose their child, regardless of whether they're seeking asylum or have some other basis for staying in the country. One major development recently was that Attorney General Sessions announced that he would no longer permit as grounds for asylum claims of domestic violence or gang violence. Can you tell us a little bit about the landscape of asylum and, and how that has affected it and how it will affect asylum seekers? Right. I mean, that was an extremely unfortunate decision. The attorney general has taken it upon himself to start issuing decisions, notwithstanding years and years of judicial decisions by immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals, slowly figuring out asylum law, which is very complicated. The one thing I want to stress to people is, notwithstanding the attorney general's decision, he did ultimately, because he had to leave the legal framework in place. So we are encouraging people to still raise asylum claims based on gang violence or domestic violence. We still believe immigration judges can grant those claims. What the attorney general is essentially trying to do is bully the immigration judges and Board of Immigration Appeals to denying all those claims, notwithstanding the fact that the legal framework remains there. But it's a very unfortunate decision. Um, we hope that we will get it overturned. In the meantime, people need to push back on the ground, develop their factual record to show why they're entitled to asylum. Do you have a sense over time of how this administration's approach to immigration, to asylum differs? You've been at the ACLU through, I think, four presidents now. Can you give us any kind of big picture takeaways Boy, about the Trump administration? You're really dating me, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a th fine th wine. Th this is, th yeah, this is the worst I've ever seen, you know, by far. Because it's a constant attack on immigrants, and it's both what they're actually doing as a practical matter, 
And it's the rhetoric of constantly trying to dehumanize the immigrant population and make everyone think of immigrants as just MS-13 members. And I constantly have to remind people, put away those sound bites and just think about the immigrant you know, the parent in your kid's school, the immigrant you work with, the immigrant in your neighborhood. You, It is very dangerous if we start dehumanizing the population because then almost anything can happen. I think, I think the separation of children and parents is sort of a, a little snapshot into how punitive this administration is willing to be. This claim that they're only going after hardened criminals and national security threats could not be more untrue. They are going after everyone, families who have lived here for years and years, been paying their taxes, their kids are US citizens. It is just an attack on immigrants straight across like nothing we've seen. Is the family separation policy, which we now know is a right. formal policy, something you've seen before in no, your immigration it, work? it is unprecedented. And the administration tried to say for a while, oh, other administrations have done it, but everyone beat them back on it and just said that's simply untrue, and it is. This is unprecedented. I mean, we were concerned with how many deportations were occurring under prior administrations, including the Obama administration but there was never anything like this. You know, when the administration thought they were so clever, we're gonna take children away. Every administration has, has known that that is something they could do if they really wanna be inhumane and punitive. And every administration, Republican or Democrat, has said, we're not gonna do that, that's just too inhumane. Uh, so I think this administration, the scale of the buildup going after people, the raids, the, the targeting of, of non-criminals, it's just unprecedented compared to other administrations. There is real fear in immigrant communities. There are fear at schools, parents fearful of bringing their kids to school. It's just a constant attack. And I think it's, you know, ultimately political scapegoating. The idea of this administration targeting certain groups is probably a nice segue to the other court decision that came down yesterday, right. an issue you've also been involved in, which is the travel ban that President Trump signed barring entry by residents of predominantly Muslim countries. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that decision? Yeah, that is an unfortunate decision. This sort of the up and down of the day. I mean, so yeah. those of us who do civil rights work are used to the sort of the ups and downs. This was a day in which there was a real low and a real high. Earlier in the day, we got the travel ban decision. Later at night, we got the family separation positive decision. Um, I, I think what's striking about it is that pretty much everyone knows as a matter of common sense what the president was saying and trying to do, that he was trying to keep Muslims out of the country. He didn't really even hide it, but the opinion goes to such great lengths to suggest, no, that's not really what motivated him. The disconnect between the opinion and what people know as a matter of common sense is so stark that I think that's what lay people probably are having trouble getting their hands around. You know, from our standpoint, I think it's gonna have enormous practical consequences for families who are not gonna be able to reunite here in the US for people who are not gonna come here to work. But I think there's also this sort of emotional symbolic aspect to it. We had been hearing from our clients for so long of feeling that they were gonna be unwelcome in the United States under a President Trump. And then to have the Supreme Court bless it is just so unfortunate. Um, just Chief Justice Roberts went out of his way to talk about Korematsu, 
the interning of the Japanese during World War II and that decision that upheld it and saying, well, that decision was wrong and it was shown in the court of history. But the hardest thing I think is to recognize in real time that something's wrong. I think years when years go by, we're gonna look back at this decision and say, the administration never really had a serious national security rationale. It was always about playing to the political base. You know, that's some solace that the court of history will condemn this opinion. But right now, there are a lot of people who are going to suffer. Yeah. Will the decision on the travel ban have any impact more broadly on President Trump's authority over the immigration law? Going into the travel ban, what made it hard is because the Supreme Court had consistently said the executive branch gets a lot of deference in the area of immigration and national security. I think that we will be able to cabin this, um, but I think that's going to be the big question is sort of going forward. Is this seen as the Supreme Court saying that lower courts should not give hard scrutiny to immigration policy or whether they will look at this to some extent as a one-off and continue to scrutinize immigration decisions? My own feeling is that the court was saying you can continue to scrutinize immigration decisions, especially where it's solely domestic. I hope that the lower courts will continue to do it. I mean, that's been one of the, the really heartening things since the administration came in, that the courts have pushed back, that Congress has not pushed back against the administration, but that the courts have stood up. I mean, when I, I argued the first challenge to the travel ban, that was one day after it was enacted and eight days after the president was inaugurated. And I always tell people that one of the things that I found amazing, even after being a lawyer for this long, and when I, especially when I talk to young lawyers and law students, is that there really wasn't any question that a single federal judge in our country could stop the president of the United States from doing this. That night in Brooklyn, I heard, I asked her, can you please block the travel ban? And she did. People quibbled over, should she have blocked it nationwide? Should she have waited a day or so? But no one really, except maybe a few fringe people, ever suggested that the federal courts in our country can't step in and play that role. And people forget, I mean, especially in the immigration area, these immigrants are coming from countries where that would be unheard of, that a federal judge could stop the president of their country. And so in that sense, we ultimately lost in the Supreme Court. But the fact that we have this court system and the lower courts have been pushing back, especially in the immigration area, I think is, is something that people should be proud of and continue to use the courts. So your silver lining is we still have the rule of law in this country? I think we do. I think there are bad spots. And I think yesterday's decision from the Supreme Court is, you know, a disappointing step. But I do think the courts are functioning and ready to play their role. And I think the decision out of San Diego last night is a perfect example. This was a hot button issue, but this judge said, these children are being traumatized, they're vulnerable, no one else can help them. I am a federal judge empowered to enforce the constitution and I'm gonna do it. Lee, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Congrats on the decision. Thank you. You've been listening to At Liberty. This is Lee Roland. We'll talk to you next week.